Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shukvostan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I feel like the universe is setting me up for a fall. How so? So remember last week, because of gymnastics, I said I felt really smart. Mm-hmm. Well, my daughter came home from college this weekend and she said, Mom, can you help me study for my anthropology quiz? And I said, oh, anthropology, I don't know. What's it on? She says it's on the history of gender testing in women's <gasps> sports. Whoa. And I said, I can help you with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really, really smart about it, obviously. We spoke to Dr. Victoria Jackson. We've done many shows on these things. I came out of this looking really, really good. Now I'm like, okay, two weeks in a row, you've made me feel smart. I'm ready to get my face smacked by a door. Oh, come on. Be nice to my friend, Allison. You are very smart in a lot of things. You can be smart for three weeks in a row. Clearly, I am due to get locked in a public restroom <laughs> with no toilet paper and to fall through the door. That'll, that'll put my ego right back in check. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to say there might be some noise in this show because I am in Atlanta for a day and we're taping from a hotel room and outside there seems to be some drag racing going on. Not an Olympic sport. <laughs> no, but I've got something fun planned for Atlanta 1996 story. Sadly, we're not talking about Atlanta 1996, but it keeps coming back up in life. And this was an opportunity to come here and uh, I've got a good meeting planned. So hopefully we will bring that to you soon today. Oh, this is so good. We are talking Paris 2024 and tickets and how you can plan your trip with the one, the only Ken Hanscom, one of our favorite Shuklastanis, although they're all our favorites. But when they come back... They are definitely a favorite. <laughs> Ken is the chief operating officer at Ticket Manager, is a recognized event and ticketing expert and an influencer in the Olympic movement with corporations and sponsors. He's been featured on NBC's primetime Olympic coverage, regularly contributes on ESPN Radio, USA Today, MSN, International Business Times, and he publishes a blog on the business of the Olympics. Ken last spoke to us in 2020 before COVID changed all of our Tokyo travel plans. And Ken is back to get us ready to go to Paris in 2024. Take a listen. Ken Hanscom, thank you so much for coming back and braving the, the Shuklastani waters again. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's fantastic to be here. So last time we spoke to you, we had our hearts broken. Uh, yeah, from Tokyo more than to once, right? Exactly. First for Tokyo 2020 and then for, for Beijing. Yeah. But Paris is a whole new game. It is a whole new game. A very exciting one. Exactly. So let's start with what do we know? Where do we stand? We're way ahead of the game. I, I think that, that's the first place to start. It, it's interesting because the next few days, we have the start of the lottery process for tickets, right? And if we look 
back to Tokyo, this didn't happen until like June 20th of 2019. And so Paris is starting this whole process like six months in advance of where it is. And I think there's a lot of benefits to that. There's also some risks inside of it, but I think Paris is shaping up to be, you know, I thought we we're going to have to like this big massive peak at Tokyo. And then we come a little bit down for Paris and then we go back up for LA, but the demand for, for Paris, you know, whether it's people who missed out on Tokyo or otherwise it being back in Europe, general excitement for events returning. There's a lot of excitement about Paris 2024. And I was just in the city what, a month and a half ago. And uh, you know, they're, they're, they're busily preparing. They're, they're getting ready to put on a fantastic show as we you know, head towards 2024. So were you there for Paralympic Day? I was not there for Paralympic Day. I was, I was there on, on vacation visiting some friends who lived there. And I took the time to see some sites, meet with the uh, Paris 2024 Committee on Ticketing and, and a few other items as well. How did that meeting go? What were they telling you? Yeah, it's, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see the ticketing programs completely change. And I'm sure we'll get into some details on that. There's no more ATRs. Like there's so much that's different. And I think they've taken a lot of the lessons, the things that could be improved on from previous games, and they're already starting to apply those. And I think we'll start seeing those here in December, January, February is this kind of first round of lottery goes on, but then we'll continue to experience that. And I think the big thing that's still surprising a number of folks, including sponsors, is that this is going to be a 100% electronic ticket games. It'll be the first one that's 100%. And there's some very good reasons for that, despite all the things that you know, folks like you and my, me love, such as I want my souvenir tickets, right? Uh, I, I want those. And, and it's, you know, we still don't know whether or not they're going to offer that, right? They may offer the ability to purchase them or otherwise. And frankly, I would recommend that they do that because that could be another revenue stream for the business. But it, it sounds like they're preparing and, and they're ready to launch here, you know, come early December with this first phase of, of ticketing, which is going to, you know, it'll play out over 18 months. But this first phase is exciting for a lot of folks. Okay. So let's get right into ticketing. What yeah. You know, we've talked a little bit about on the show that we're going to have lots of price ranges, that we've gotten rid of the co-sports and the resellers of the world. But how yeah. is this going to operate if you've never bought tickets before? Where do you start? Yeah, I think where you start is with any good planning to attend an Olympic Games, you really got to understand when you want to be there. And, and the reason for that is, as is, is you know, is that there's a different dynamic between the first week and the second week. The first week is frenetic, right? There are hundreds of events happening, at sessions happening at the same time. You have all your preliminaries. You could literally pull off going to four events a day if you had the stomach for that. And the pricing is also lower. In addition to that, you have generally swimming the first week, which is one of the bigger draws, and you have track and field or athletics the second week. And so when you start looking at the schedule, you have to make some determinations on it. If, if you have a more limited budget, I would definitely encourage someone to say, you know, I want to target the first week because there are these preliminary events, which are, you know, one third, one fourth, one fifth, the cost of the finals events. And then as you kind of go into the usher in that second week, right, you have all of the, you know, team competitions and those kinds of things kind of crescendoing into the end of the Olympic games where you, then you have the gold medal basketball final, you know, whatever all those different finals are, are happening. And so you get to the point where the last two or three days, there's really only three or four events happening that you have to choose from. You not only have more competition for those particular events, and then you also are, it's going to be more expensive. So I think the first part of it, when you think about planning to go to Olympic games and you think about ticketing is that you think about like, what is my schedule? What are the events I want to see? And then what am I going to target? Because in the first couple of phases, it's kind of random what you get. And I'll, I'll be, I'll be transparent. I have never 
been selected during the lottery phase to purchase a ticket. I think this is good news for everyone out there because there's all this excitement. There's going to be millions of people that are going to register. And we know the allocations work in a general way as they have for the past Olympics where 70% of the tickets are going to go to the host country. I mean, that, that's the rough numbers. Is it 62? Is it 74? That 20% are going to go to sponsors, stakeholders, all of those. And then 10% are available for the rest of the world. So, you know, if you look at these 10 million tickets that are possibly out there for the games, you know, get down to 10% for us that are, for, you know, potentially in the United States. And then think about what slice is going to be available for the first couple of phases, right? It's going to be a limited, it's going to be limited. And so the people that get in are, I think are going to be very excited and we still don't know what tickets are going to be there. But I think it's, it's really important early on to keep your expectations even. Like I said, I've generally attended about 30 events per Olympics for the last several and I will do that again. My wife and I, we plan to attend between 30 and 35 events in Paris. And I've never gotten a single ticket from the lottery phase. So I think that should be an encouraging. So if you do get a ticket as part of, as part of that phase, I think if you're a resident of France, I think you're, you're obviously your chances of, you know, knowing that 70% of the you know, tickets are allocated for the host country, your chances are much, much higher. So I think that's kind of where you start thinking about that. Then if it makes sense, we can talk about this first phase what's going to happen and we go, go into the second phase. And because at that time, then hotels and all these other things start coming into play. Okay. So what we have been telling our listeners is yeah. the club. Everybody must join the club if you want to get tickets. So let's talk a little bit about what that is yeah. and, and what else you would say as to how that first phase is going to work. Yeah. I think right now, at least the documentation that's out there, it's pretty clear that the club is not going to give you a better chance of getting a ticket or winning. But you absolutely should join the club or the club for Paris 2024. And the reason being is that if you are in the club and you happen to be selected during the lottery, you know, your draw, your name's drawn, you'll be moved to the front of the line, right? So there's a period of, we will see what it is, 15 days, 20 days, whatever the number is that you can buy tickets. And we'll all be, if we win, we get slotted into a 48 hour slot. And that's when we can come in, log in and, and have some selection there. Obviously the earlier you, again, I don't know how the Paris team is going to release the tickets, but the conventional wins of wisdom is the earlier that you can get in, the better selection you will have. And given that, and right now, if you are in the club, you will be moved to the first four days. purchasing. So that is a big advantage. There's already 800,000 people that have signed up for the club. And I think that if you are taking a chance on the lottery to get in and get your first tickets for Paris 2024, you absolutely should sign up for the club. Okay. So if that's kind of a bonus, how is it going to work in terms of what everybody else is doing? Well, I think what, you're, what everyone else is going to be doing is starting December 1st and all the way through January 31st, we can go in and create a ticketing account. It should be on the sales platform, which is going to be Eventim. They also did Rio 2016. I would say they did a fantastic job. Rio 2016, once we got to the point where we could use the platform as international visitors, the resale platform was fantastic. The availability was easy to navigate. Inventum did a fantastic job in Rio 2016. So we'll be able to log in there. We'll create our account and then we get to wait. And hopefully, hopefully, February 13th, around that time frame, we'll get emails. This is another, I think, Lesson learned from Tokyo 2020. I don't know if you remember Tokyo 2020, but when they did the Tokyo only lottery and they announced the results, you had to log in to find out. 
Within the first 15 minutes of it opening, the queue to get in was over a million people. And some people waited 17 or 24 hours to be able to log in and just to see if they won. So I mean, if you think getting into a Taylor Swift on sale or an Ed Sheeran on sale is like, like hard, like imagine being in line with a million other people. And that's what it was in Tokyo. And what Paris is going to do, which is absolutely the right way to do it, fantastic kind of learning from that experience in, in, in Tokyo, is they're going to send out emails. And in that email, you will get your time frame. And during that 48-hour window, that's when you'll be able to log in and you'll be able to, you know, it's ticket packs, right? The first stage of the first phase, right? The first phase is, is really the lotteries. The first stage is multi-session packs where you can pick up to three events. So that's what we're going to experience. Yeah, and, and what I say is, you know, as part of that, is what we don't know either is, are we each going to get two? Can we get up to four of its family of four? I highly doubt it's going to be six or eight if you have a larger group. I, I would anticipate it being somewhere between two and four, just, you know, for this first phase. Okay, so we've got first phase of tickets. Do you expect there to be a decent market of resale and week month of availability? Absolutely, and not from a second, not from a secondary market standpoint. I think there's going to be a very concerted effort to, to, to limit those for the brokers, the scalpers. I think there's a lot, a lot of technologies out there. Again, eventually, some brokers they're going to get their hands on them and then they'll build the the tickets. I think a couple of things are very interesting. I think when we are making plans 18 and months in advance, I think you're, we're going to have a higher degree of people who get tickets in the lottery that will decide not to go into 2024. It's just the way it is, right? We don't know anything about hotels yet. We can talk about that, what we do know about hotels in a little bit. We don't know anything about flights. And so some people are just kind of, don't even really know what the budget's going to be or whether or not going to that. But why would you not take a chance at getting those tickets? And because, you know, through the Ventum platform, Paris 24 is going to have a fan-to-fan resale site which means that as a, and again, this existed in Rio, so it's not the first time we've seen this. It was on, on Stone Platform, and it worked extremely well. You know, if you decide, you know what, my son's getting married or I'm getting married and, and it's going to happen into, into 2024 and now I can't go to the game or, or my best friends, whatever, you can now be able to go on this platform and just click them to, to, to be resell or something happens right there. So, so I expect that to happen and continue. And I always, this is my, one of my two favorite phrases, which is, is getting your Olympic tickets is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think it's very easy to get discouraged early on if you get shut out of a lottery or something like that. And I said, don't get discouraged. Like you're going to have a multiple, you know, multitude of opportunities over the next 18 months up until including during the games to acquire additional tickets. Is it going to be easy? Are they going to fall on your lap? Absolutely not. But if you work at it, and you kind of understand, you know, what the opportunities are. I think a lot, you know, a good, good portion of people who are committed to going to the Olympic Games will be able to, to obtain a good portion of the number of tickets that they'd like to have. Hotels, the place of price gouging of any situation. Yeah. Paris is not a cheap city. I know you have mm-hmm. been there many times before. What are you expecting? What are you seeing? It's, it's interesting. You know, usually what happens is whenever the bid is announced or confirmed, you know, what we know happens, you know, eight, 10 years in advance is all of the sponsors, all of the exclusive hospitality providers, like an on location, and also as part of the bid contract, a number of the top hotels are all, they're all committed to, they're signed over. So if you had dreams and you had the unlimited budget, and this one of my other favorite things is that you can go to the Olympics on $2,000, but you could, I also know people who spend $2 million going to an Olympic games. And you can really do that. If you really want to stay in the four seasons, 
or you know any of the other top hotels, Ritz Carlton. I can you know go on and on in terms of all the ones that are there. You are not going to unless you're with a sponsor or you go through a provider like On Location. Yeah, like normal folks, we're not going to be able to go onto the website 365 days in advance and look at that. Now, when I was in Paris a month ago, one of the things I was surprised because I went and talked with a number of hotels. I said, hey, I'm still searching for a place myself. I'm likely, because I'm there for about you know five weeks usually, I'm likely to end up with an apartment. Uh, I might end up in the fortunate situation with one of my friends might trade houses with me for a month, which would be fantastic. But I was just curious in terms of like where they were. So I went to several that are affiliated with major brands, major international brands that you and I know. And I asked them like, so what's the deal? Like, is this the Coca-Cola hotel or is this the, you know, whoever it may, whatever sponsor of the day, you know, the sponsor that's a major top sponsor, NBC or Atos or any of these others. And they're like, no, we, we decided to opt out of the host city contract. And then actually I talked with several and it was a little bit surprising to me. So I think as we get, again, that means not under contract right now. There's nothing that keeps a sponsor from going in over the next eight months and writing a contract on those hotels. I think we might be surprised now, not necessarily with the pricing, but we might be surprised with the availability of hotels that you know the names of, that you recognize the names of, not just the boutique, you know, 30 room t- type of hotels that you might see that would kind of normally be available. So I think that that's going to be something interesting to follow, I think, over the next six to seven months to see if that happens. And, you know, I, I made contacts with a few of them, and I'll, I'll email back and forth to see what, what their plans are to do that. People might even be fortunate enough to be able to go on points if, if they t- time it correctly, given, you know, some of these hotels I talked to have robust point programs for which you can opt in and, and go to. So, so, yeah, so that's the hotels. And then we have the whole Airbnb piece of it. Th- right? Thank you for asking the question before I did. <laughs> that was the Airbnb. I, 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 I could see. Airbnb is a sponsor and they've talked it about is a sponsor. This, you know, the organizing committee creating this whole system with them. But what is that actually panning out to look like? I think we're going to see a lot of benefit from it. I know that Paris in general has not been a huge uh, short-term rental market and just in terms of the overall political environment and even the resident environment in terms of that. But but I think there, there's going to be a, enough of an impact from that in terms of both the relationship with Paris 2024 with Airbnb, where you will see meaningful you know inventory that is available. It will be cheap. I, I, I sincerely doubt it. But I think that we will see a meaningful impact, which again, the more availability you have, whether it's hotels or Airbnbs, or even, you know, you might have a lot of private folks renting out apartments and otherwise, I, th- I think the better it is for, for all fans who want to visit Paris, France and attend 2024. Generally, hotel bookings are a year in advance. Yep. Rules sometimes change with the Olympics and they will cancel your booking and reprice it. So how, yeah. what do you expect from, from Paris? What I expect is multinational brand are much more unlikely to cancel any reservation that you have. And I think, and that's just a general brand protection, you know, et cetera. You know, I think with Airbnb, I think they're going to add some additional protections to that with hosts and otherwise, right, as part of that part partnership there. But I, I think, you know, we saw this in Tokyo early on. Some people, and this was really more, I think, was on the private residence side in terms of more of kind of, again, I'm using Airbnb as a category, not necessarily the brand, which is fantastic for the brand because it's a category, but people that who were doing it independently of a large organization like Airbnb, that's where we saw the majority of kind of those those cancellations where people didn't really, they didn't look out in the calendar 18 months in advance like you and I are doing right now and saying, hey, how exactly, what are the dates? You know, when do I log on to this site? When do I log on to this, that site? When do I check, you know, airline flights? 
And so I think early on in, in July, maybe early August, we could see some of that. Paris is a big city. There's it events is. happening all over the city and outside the yeah. city. How do you figure out where to stay? I, I think places where general, for me, when I think about it, I want to be where the action normally is in the city because the, like the popular places and cities. So my plans are to stay in the first day. Like, then that's, that's, you know, the opera area, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of excitement happening in that area. I'm going to stop uh, you for a second. When you say yeah. first and eighth, what does that, what is, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, there, there's, I don't want to call them boroughs. You know, I butcher the French language. So, so I, I, I just start with the first and the eighth, so we'll, uh, but we'll, there are areas. The two of us will try and say arrondissement. Arrondissement, <laughs> exactly. But, but effectively, right, there, there's basically 20 areas within the kind of traditional city limits, Paris or city walls, whatever you want to call, you know, however it's classified. And those 20 zones, the first and the eighth are basically where like the Louvre, uh, where the opera area is, you know, Jean-Lager, which I, of course, butcher as well because I'm terrible. Arc, all, all those things are kind of in that area. It's along the, you know, Seine River. And so I think for just experience, even being there, that, that's where I stayed. I stayed in the first one when my wife and I were there a couple. We just enjoyed it, right? The number of cafes to sit down, the accessibility. And Paris is like the ultimately walkable city. So I think anywhere, for the most part, w- within that kind of main area of Paris, I, I think is a good place to target. It has a, it has a fantastic you know, metro system and you can get anywhere in kind of 20, 30 minutes. And, you know, the other thing I think will be interesting to watch too is that in the summer months, some of our best friends are Parisians and they're like, we don't stay in the city. And, and Susan will look here, we're out. Like, and so and I think we had that kind of experience in London back in 2012 where a lot of people just left the city. And so I think we, it's, it's likely we might see a similar behavior for those who are not really into sport either that or they stay for the beginning or come back at the end but i think there is going to be a you know significant portion of the population with that will choose to leave the city as, as they may do on an annual basis how difficult is it in paris to stay outside the city and get into the city i think if you stay around a major metro line not so much for example, when I went out to the Paris 2024 offices, which is outside the limits, out in St. Denis, it just took me like 20 minutes to get up there. Uh, so it really wasn't uh, a big deal. And, and it was, you know, 20 minutes by, by Metro and it was like 25 minutes by Uber. So it's, it's you know, or whatever rideshare taxi you choose to take. So I, I think it, it's still pretty relatively compact. And I, I think the main thing that you'd be looking for if you are staying outside the city is your proximity to a line of the Metro that can get you into the central area fairly quickly, you know, less than less than 30 minutes kind of thing. That That's probably what I would encourage people to do. You mentioned budget and your budget can be zero to a million. If people are saving up, what do those numbers actually translate to? Like what would be a budget budget, a mid-range budget, a luxury budget? Yeah, I think a lower budget, I think we'd say, let's say call it two people. Again, families of four, you can multiply it, whatever. And I'm assuming you're going to have $1,500 flight tickets, right? Maybe they're down to 1000 maybe they're there at 2000 you know, if we use those sort of estimates, somewhere in the five to $7,000 range, is, it, it, it all depends. Are you using points? Because if you're using points and you can get there on a flight and you can get your hotel room during that, and then you can look at, you know, event tickets starting at 45 euros and you're kind of saying, well, hey, I can probably do this for under 1500 bucks, right? I think if you look at like budget, budget and, and, and doing all of that, I mean, I think $1,500 is kind of like $2,000, kind of your minimum entry level. Then when you start putting kind of like flights and you're paying for that, it's probably five to seven. And then now if you start getting into kind of a mid-range, like, you know, I want to go to gymnastics all-around finals and I want, you know, I want to do category A's and, you know, that'll be a whole thing too, I think, with some of the premium hospitality. I think you get very quickly into the five figures and, uh, you know, I think you start talking about, you know, luxury experiences, they're north of six figures. 
And this is all based on if you're coming out of the U.S.? Yeah, you. I would say as long as you're not living, yeah, if you're coming out of the U.S. and you also need a hotel, because your flight's going to be a portion of it, but also the hotel, potentially the food, potentially the event tickets, those are going to be kind of your, I would say ultimately those are probably going to be your two most expensive things, are generally going to be your accommodations and then your event tickets. I have never been to Paris. I have never been to France. Yeah. So what kinds of things are you expecting of the Olympics that would either be problematic because it's French and especially great because it's French? I, I don't see anything on, on the problematic side. You know, I, I know worldwide right now we have like, you know, some issues in airports, international airports. I expect all that stuff to get worked through by the time, time we get there. Yeah, you know, I always advise people, advise traveling uh, arriving on opening, you know, day of opening ceremony or leaving the day after closing because the airports are a mess and it's going to take you to, it, it's just the way it is. Anytime, you know, a hundred thousand people go to an airport on any given day, no matter how much you plan for it, when that's not your normal capacity, right? It's an issue. So I think those things are, and, and you can uh, avoid those sorts of things, but I think, you know, there's just so, uh, it, it's really interesting from, you know, my experience in France is I've always enjoyed it um, in Paris, but this last you know week or so that my wife, I just like, I don't know, I won't say I fell in love with it, but I just, but the experience I had was such more, I guess, almost kind of more romantic than it, than it had been. And and I look at like, the, you know, it's a hundred years since 1924, third time being hosted in, in Paris. I look at all the, you know, they're doing a fantastic job of, of putting events in iconic places, right? Beach volleyball at the Eiffel Tower, you know, where you look at, you can have archery, like all these locations that are kind of lined along the, the river. There's just going to be so many iconic places. It's like the beach volleyball, you know, happening at on the Copacabana beach in, in Rio and some of the other sites that we had in London, but there seems to be more of those. And I don't, I don't think we're going to have experienced again. I think we would have had a similar experience in Tokyo. It, to be frank, it's fortunate we, we all couldn't take part of that. There was a worldwide pandemic happening in case you hadn't heard about it. But this is going to really be the best we've had, I think, opportunity we've had really since London. And London was, for, for most people, if you ask them what their favorite one they went to, I think Sydney is often at the, at the top of a lot of people's lists. And I think London is, is right up there as well. How much French do we need? You, you don't need any my personal view on this is I try to be respectful and where I can, especially in shorter asking questions that, that I can speak a little bit. Admittedly, I, I'm terrible, but but I've, I've found that, you know, Lisa Arnlaster, everyone there was very, very understanding. And maybe that's also some, some level of, with tourism struggling multiple years with the pandemic, I think there's lots of, as, as tourism starts to come back, I also think there's also this we need this, right? We, we want that this actually helps our businesses. So I think there's a little bit more openness in terms of there, but you know, yeah, I know you're in the, in the Facebook group and we already have people in there insisting that we use, it's a multinational group and you know, we're up to 6,500 people and we've already had requests from French nationals that French is used inside that group. And we've had to politely say is, Hey, this is a multinational group, whatever language people are comfortable in, please go ahead and use the language to Google translate and all those things. So I, yeah, there'll be some, maybe some elements of that in some places, but I, but I think the French people in general are going to be very welcoming uh, and excited to be able to host and show off their great city, their great country, you know, a little over 18 months or so. Do we need to go to Tahiti? Kind of always need to go to Tahiti. I was going to say you never kind of always need to go. It's, you know, you gotta, I have to come back to LA if I was going to do that. Cause I think right air Tahiti basically goes through Seattle, San Francisco and, and, and LA, but you know, I, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty exciting. I think that it'll be there. I you know, obviously I don't know what the, I, I think originally it was supposed to be on the, on the Southern coast of France, 
before it got moved there. I think it would, I was actually going to consider taking the train out to Southern France to see the event, but I probably won't make it to Tahiti while I'm in, while I'm in Paris. Yeah, we're we're sort of saying, you know, does one of us go to Tahiti and the other goes to Paris? <laughs> yeah, we were fortunate to be in Bora Bora a year ago, about the, about this time a year ago, and it, it's an amazing place. And I'd love to go there for an event, but I don't know. I'd actually, frankly, rather be under the water diving if, if I'm in Tahiti. You're not going to be watching television in Tahiti. No, no. Be um, watching the waves. Traveling around in Paris, and you were talking about that this is very popular. People are really interested in coming. Should we be expecting kind of the most densely crowded city that we've seen in a long time for an event like this? It's a really good question. And, and that what I think about is, as we talked about a little bit earlier, I think a lot of Parisians are, are already planning to not be in the city during the Olympics, just like we, like we saw in London. And in, in London, it didn't feel overly crowded. It's, it's also during the summertime, which is generally a high tourist time. But if you're a tourist, you are, don't want to go to the Olympic Games, and that's not not something for you. You're not going to go to Paris in, in the summer of 2024. So I think if you kind of remove that and kind of substitute it with the Olympic traffic, I, I think you're going to see just simply a different set of interests in terms of people. But I don't necessarily you're going to, you're going to see a more densely populated maybe the first week because there's so many people coming and going because there are so many events you know happening during that time, and maybe the metros are a little bit more crowded than they normally would be. But I think as you get in the second week, I think it'll, it'll normalize quite a bit. Other than ticketing, does any of this change for Paralympics? You know, I think we'll see. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it is costs will definitely be lower because not as many people do travel. But I think all the same basic kind of tips and locations and where you want to stay and where the centers of gravity are going to be are going to be very, very similar. What did I not ask that you want to tell people to get ready for Paris? We just talked about the first phase of ticket sales, which is the multi-pack. And then that is going to be December through January. You'll have your opportunity in March. Then the next phase will roll into another lottery, which is March, April, and then you can do those in May. Then all the other activities start happening around, I would call more open sales, roughly one year before the event. And that's when you start seeing kind of larger inventories, a more diverse inventory, and kind of have the ability to go in and, and generally purchase. So I think really with your, your targeting things is kind of that one-year mark to go is when you really see that pick up. I think one of the other big changes for Paris 2024 is the hospitality and the premium side of things. So as part of the deal that On Location did, and if you guys don't know who On Location is, On Location is the same provider. It's part of, of, of Endeavor, which is a publicly traded company here in the United States. But it's the same company that does the Super Bowl entertainment. It does a lot of the CFP, hospitality entertainment. They have the entire exclusive arrangement for hospitality and packages for the Paris 2024 games. And what that means is, you know what, Ken, budget's not a problem for me. I have X amount to spend, and I don't want to go through all this. Like, I love ticket hunting. Like, that's it's kind of like a hobby for me. Uh, even if I have other opportunities and other ways to get tickets, I still really enjoy that. You're like, you know what? No stress, nothing. I just want to know I'm going these seven days. I'm going to stay in a great hotel. I want to have the in-venue hospitality, and I want someone to just take me all around so I don't have to worry about that. So On Location is going to do a fantastic job. Right now, it's information only. You can go there, but eventually, I think in the next few months, I'm going to start launching that phase, and you'll be go able to go in there. And you know, I'm not going to say similar to Coast Fork. It's very, very different. Because they're also act offering activities and you know things from like food tours and all these other things that you could kind of fit into an overall package. If you're looking for those sorts of experiences, that's what's one thing that's changed. You're gonna have one place to go regardless of where you live in the world. 
and that's going to be the on-location experiences. So start saving now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. And like I said, it's you know, there are, I know people that spend two thousand dollars visiting Olympics. I know people that spend almost two million dollars, and it, it's a tremendous array. I mean, there's people out there that have private planes and you know fly. They take their private planes there, and they happen to have those means. And there's other people who it's their first time, and you know maybe they're early in their career, or they're in college, and you know they're bootstrap, you know whatever it may be. But I think the great thing is about the Olympics. There's something for everyone. And I think the other thing we we gosh. Yes, but what else we haven't talked about? We haven't talked about all the other stuff that's not about sport. Well, uh, I mean, I was going to ask you about the opening ceremonies and being in the city. So all the things, yeah. if you're not getting tickets, what do you expect yeah. to see? Because I, I, it's Paris. And I think it's one that what my wife and I like to do. We like to go a year before and actually do all the sites so we don't do it. But people choose to do that there, and it's often fine. You know, because it's, it, it's a summer busy season, and you're basically replacing one sort of visitor which is no, your normal tourist going to visit Paris for the first time with Olympic visitors. And so I don't, you know, there'll be some level of crowds, but probably no more than you would normally see. But I would actively encourage people not to book tickets for every single day that you will be there. There's going to be what they call hospitality houses. This is, you know, it's one of my favorite things to do is a lot of countries. And it's going to be there between 12 and 15 countries. It could be as high as 20 or 25 in Paris, but they will have a house where you can go and visit I mean, the Holland Heineken house is, is one of the most popular ones. And it's popular one because it's Heineken, it's a big party. Every single night that a, an athlete wins a medal for, for Holland, basically what they do is they're contracted to come there and celebrate with whoever's there that night. And so if you want to have like an athlete experience, a guaranteed athlete experience, that's one way to do it. And Germany, Team USA, which happens is, is, is usually a closed house. We'll see as more information comes out what it happens to be. There's all these other opportunities to visit that experience, local food, different foods, meet people. I think that's one of my favorite things to do during Olympic Games outside events is the opportunity to meet others that you know enjoy sport and the type of sports that you do. And some of the best friends I have now, I met for the first time in London, you know, at London in 2012. And so, so there's going to be that. I think the other thing is Paris is also looking to add a lot of cultural events that are going to coincide with the same time frame as the summer games. And I think there'll be other opportunities to engage in cultural experiences that aren't necessarily directly involved with sport, but during that same time. So, you know, what I'd actively encourage people to do is make sure you plan a couple of days. If you're going to be there two weeks, make sure if there's three to four days where you're really not going to events and you can kind of enjoy these other things. And going to events every day is exhausting. It is. It is. The most, I think we've done four one day and that, that was crazy. Unfortunately, they were all in the Olympic Park at Rio, so we didn't really have to walk around. But yeah, I, I would generally encourage people to do no more in two a day and to make sure that they're relatively closely located to each other. Because just ultimately, it, between security and getting in venue and just looking and you just want to take in some of these venues that you've never been in before, just your time starts getting really, really crunched. But yeah, it, it can be very exhausting, especially if you're not used, used to that sort of level of activity. What's your number one must do for Paris 2024? That's such a good question. I don't know if I have a great answer for it. I think my must do is I must be at, at several swimming finals and we must be at the gymnastics finals for, for women's both team and all around. I know I'm, I'm signed up for that. Those are my wife's favorite things. Uh, swimming happens to be my favorite. And then I think I, I'll absolutely make sure I am at um, several U.S. women's soccer teams. I mean, my, my wife and I love the supporting team. We're heading down to Australia next summer to watch the World Cup down there. So I think those are kind of our must-do things. Obviously, spend some time in the Team USA house. We're fortunate enough to be able to do that uh, at times. So those are kind of things that, that I think are, 
are kind of must-dos outside of meeting new people that and getting to know people and making friends that probably will end up being lifetime friends. Mon ami. <laughs> Mon ami. What's yours? What, what's yours? For right now, it's just getting there. Yeah. Because I have never been mm-hmm. to a summer now yeah. and certainly a non-COVID. And I've never been to Paris. So there are so many things on this list that make it very overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, the other piece I would add is I plan anything that's an iconic like venue, beach volleyball, archery. We'll make Tennis. sure to attend those. But, yeah. Yeah. Roland Garros, of course. Yes. Uh, you know, fan- fantastic. And I think the real question is, is I don't want to be a predictor. I don't know the next time that breaking will be in the Olympics. And so do I take the potential one opportunity to experience that because that's a unique experience that I may never you know, have the opportunity to have. And then the, I think the other pieces are the other Olympic sports like skateboarding and three-on-three basketball as well as sport climbing. That's are, are, are ones that were new in Tokyo but didn't have spectators, so it'll be first-time for spectators. So that's a general thing I try to do is I, I try to visit and experience all the sports that, that I haven't seen before. You going to try to get to the opening ceremonies on the sun? I'll be there, one way or the other. You'll be swimming and... <laughs> Well, I mean, the interesting thing about opening ceremony is it'd be 650,000 people opening ceremony. That's that's a massive, massive change is is we're not limited to the 68,000 people who were at at, at previous opening ceremonies. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to experience that. And I know that the the committee's figured out exactly how to do that, both from a security as well as from a ticketing standpoint, that there's expected to be both cost-based tickets as well as potentially free tickets for the public. Yeah, I have a feeling it may be sort of like the Rose Bowl Parade, where you have like sections of seating and then other places where it's first come, first served. I entirely expect that depending on where, you know, obviously the flotilla is coming down, but depending on what you're doing with, you know, the speeches, the live entertainment and and some of the other, you know, aspects of the ceremony. But I I expect that anyone kind of lining the the river during it will have the opportunity to see the athletes go by. What ends up, I think, at the Eiffel, right? Of course, because, you know, it's the Eiffel Tower. We must end at the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so, so I, I think even you will likely be at the opening ceremony if you want to. <laughs> it, it all comes down to, I think, anyone who wants to will likely have the opportunity to do it. Now, what we don't know is are we going you know, to have to camp out the night before? <laughs> or like we're camping out for, you know, back, to, back in the old days when you had to camp out for concert tickets. Ken, I thank you so much. My pleasure. You know, it's, we're at the very beginning here. We're super early, earlier than we've ever been in an Olympic cycle. And a lot's going to happen over the next 18 months. Uh, but I think by the time we get there, most people who really want to go will have the opportunity to find reasonable prices for airlines, for hotel rooms, and be able to attain a decent number of tickets at reasonable prices if they uh, put the time and effort into it. Thank you so much, Ken. You can follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Hanscom and Insta. He is the Ken Hanscom. If you are looking for more news, follow the Facebook group Paris 2024 Olympics Planning and Preparation. And then we'll also have a link to Ken's Ultimate Guide to Paris 2024, your roadmap to the Summer Games in Paris, France. That sound means it's time for our history moment. And all year long, we are looking at Albertville 1992 as it is the 30th anniversary of those Olympics. It is my turn for a story. We haven't talked about biathlon yet, or even started talking biathlon, and we know how you had weeks of figure skating. And you're running out of weeks here, Jill. I know, I'm running out of weeks. Well, we may not have that many biathlon, but we're having more than just one biathlon story because Albertville was a big Olympics for biathlon. This was the last games that the sport would be associated with the International Federation UIPMB, 
because in 1993, it would break off and form the International Biathlon Union, leaving modern pentathlon all on its own. I'm so confused why they were ever together in the first place. But the shooting elements of it, I can see the shooting and racing. Yeah. Albertville was also the first Olympics where women competed in biathlon. So we're definitely talking about that. But today I just want to focus on one race, which would be the men's 20K. At Albertville, each gender had three events. They had a sprint, they had an individual event, and the relay. The biathlon venue was a notable 1,650 meters above sea level, which is close to a mile. Okay, thanks. I was trying to do the math there. (laughs) For the men's 20K, which was the individual race, it had five laps and four bouts of shooting. They did prone, standing, prone, standing. If you missed a target, you got a one-minute penalty. The total climb in this race was 728 meters. So an already high course got even higher in altitude. That made it tougher on all the athletes. Were they yodeling in the middle of this race? (laughs) They might have. I'm sure the fans were for sure. So the 20K was the very last race of the whole entire biathlon competition at Albertville. It was notable for many reasons, but one of the big ones was who wasn't there. And that would be the unified team's Sergei Tarasov, who was one of the favorites. He got sick in Albertville just before the competition. And my favorite David Walczynski Complete Guide to the Olympics book said food poisoning. And I've seen in other official words that he had ate bad mushrooms. And that was the story given at the time. But years later, Tarasov told Sport Express, which is a Russian media outlet. And by Russian media outlet, I mean, I read this via Google Translate. So some of the words might be a little off that he was sick because of blood doping. And he had decided to try blood doping. And they took some blood from the summer Prior to this, when they had been training at altitude, so the blood, red blood cells were higher, somewhere along the way, either the blood was not refrigerated properly or he was doped with somebody else's blood, which was the wrong blood type. So his blood got infected. He went into a coma and was clinically dead, but doctors got him back. They were able to take all of his blood out. They infused him with hemodes which caused his bone marrow to start producing blood again. And it's pretty gruesome what they what he talks about what happened. So we, we won't talk about that here. So Tarasov, obviously out of it for these games, he surprisingly came back for Lillehammer and he won a full set of medals. I'd love to know what the results of those testing No, would he, be if you know, we could he, run it now. He has claimed, because he talked with Sport Express somewhere around 2015, and he has said he... That was the first time he had ever tried blood doping and he didn't compete. So he's never competed doping because obviously when once that happens to you, I think you kind of get scared from trying blood doping again. And this was the height of blood doping, that late 80s, early 90s, because Mm -hmm. they were starting to get caught for all the anabolic steroids. So they were trying something else. Exactly. So now with Tarasov, who is going to win gold? Would it be defending gold medalist Frank Peter Roach from Germany? And he was formerly East German. And this, again, is the first time that the two countries are competing again after a few decades off. Roach was one of the first biathletes to start skate skiing. And he had done this several years earlier. But so that, that was not new for Albertville. But he was one of the first ones to employ that technique and won gold in Calgary 1988. 
Unfortunately, he did not repeat his success because he missed seven targets, adding seven minutes of time to his total, and he finished 53rd. Clean shooting. Right. So would the winner be uh, the unified team's Sergei Chepikov, who had won the overall biathlon World Cups in 1990-1991? He had the fourth fastest ski time at this event. He missed three targets, finished 10th. So how about the reigning world champ in the 20K, who is Mark Kirchner, also from Germany? And Kirchner had won two golds in the other two biathlon events at Albertville. So he's primed here. He's having a great game. Skis the second fastest time of the race. Also missed three targets. He got silver. So who wins? This guy named Yevgeny Redskin from Unified Team. And everyone said, who is this? Because he'd only won a couple of events at a 1990 World Junior Champs. And nobody knew much else about him. And he was not even listed in the Soviet team book or unified team book before Albertville. And found out he was racing just two days before the event. He didn't ski all that great. His ski time was 18th overall. But he was the only competitor in the top 10 who shot cleanly, made all the difference, and he won the gold medal. So that was really his glory moment as an athlete. He did keep competing for Belarus because he was Belarusian. And as the unified team only competed in that Olympics together for the winter, he did try to defend his gold medal at Lillehammer. But instead of winning gold, he ironically repeated the results of the man he ousted from the podium, finished exactly as Frank Peterruch had in 53rd place. Welcome to Shukflistan. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show who make up our citizenship of our very own country, Shukflistan. We got some results. So shooter Tim Sherry finished second at the CMP Dixie Doubles, and we will be seeing him again next week at the Championships of the Americas. Ryan Shane who was on our show last week, competed in his first short track speed skating World Cup event in Salt Lake City, got into some trouble with penalties in both the 500 meter and the 1000 meter, and the U.S. men finished eighth in the relay. Aaron Jackson left the World Skate Games with a gold, a silver, and a bronze in the inline road races, and she is back on the ice this week in Norway for the first World Cup races in long track. Amazing. And Team Schuster won the 2022 New Floors Penticton Curling Classic. Ginny Thrasher was on History Channel's Mountain Men Ultimate Marksman last Thursday. I did watch this. It was quite fun. Because if you were a fan, if you were a fan of Top Shot, which I was not only because it was shooting and that's fun to watch, but it was also hosted by Colby Donaldson from season two of Survivor. Colby is back. <laughs> Does he have his Texas flag wrapped around him again? No, he does not. But he's back and Ginny's there and they're shooting a lot of different guns and keep saying, oh, Ginny's, this is a heavy gun. Ginny's only used to holding an air rifle. How's she going to do? Does she shoot any of them for that? (laughs) No, because Ginny. You're a better woman than I, Ginny. Ginny is a professional. (laughs) She silences them with her marksmanship. Pretty much. And 
Oh, Louise Sugden and Joe Muir visited Buckingham Palace for the official royal reception of Team GB athletes from Tokyo and Beijing. I was texting or rather messaging with Louise and I said, did you meet Anne, the Princess Royal? Because that's all I really cared about. But she said she chatted with King Charles and with Princess Anne and that they were lovely. Oh, of course. But how exciting. I saw some of those pictures and they looked, it's almost better than going to the White House. I would say. Oh, it's way better because there were way, there's only one president. They got oh. King Charles, Queen Consort Camilla. They had Princess Anne. They had the Earl and Countess of Wessex. I mean, they had a whole panel P going on of royalty. And competing this week, actually, they probably will have competed by the time you read this. Sarah Gascon and Team USA is in the 2023 North American Pan Am Games qualifier. This is versus Canada on Thursday, November 10th. The winner of this will go to the Pan Am Games next year. So I'm super excited for her and Team USA. Before we continue on, I wanted to remind you that it's almost book club time. So if you haven't gotten your book, it's at the bottom. Oh, please do so. It, we are reading Snowball's Chance by David Antonucci, and you can get it at our bookshop.org storefront. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash Flame Alive pod. We have a link to that in our show notes. And really, any book you buy through that link, we get a little commission on, and that really helps to defray the costs of the show and for coverage of future Olympic and Paralympic events. So thank you so much. Haven't heard that music in a while. Yeah, and to be honest, given the situation, that's really the music I should have played. Yeah, so we do have an update to the Camilla Valieva situation. What do you know? Okay, so you'll see this in a lot of places. I got it off Sports Examiner. You saw it from the New York Times. Rusada has said, so the Russian anti-doping agency, Rusada, has said it will not release the results of its investigation of Camilla Valieva and her suspension for finding an illegal substance at the Russian National Championships last December. So the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, said, oh, yes, you have to release the results, but that's fine. We'll just take it to the court of arbitration for sport. So that means if WADA doesn't think that a national body is moving quickly enough or responsibly enough or is doing anything to undermine the legitimacy of anti-doping efforts, they can just bypass the country's agency and go to CAS, which is basically what WADA is doing. Because the assumption is then made that the national agency found no violation. So WADA is saying there was a violation, and now there's the assumption, since Rusada is refusing to release its results, that there was no violation. So now WADA brings it to CAS. So Honestly, even though, guess what's going to happen next? If Rusada doesn't respond properly, they're going to get suspended again. But for the Valieva case, this actually will move it along more quickly. Which is a good thing. But even so, it's kind of frustrating how going through the proper channels gets you back to where you would have been if you bypassed the proper channels in this case. So it's probably going to be a full year after the violation was announced back in February, that we will get a decision from Cass, if we're lucky. 
But on the silver lining of this, Russia is banned from competition from all the skate, the ISU events for the year. So we're not dealing with a potentially suspended athlete competing anyway. Very good. Unlike what happened in Beijing. And those poor <sighs> team athletes still have no medal. Yeah, oh, so frustrating. Oh, some Paris 2024 teasers dropped. As if we didn't give you enough Paris 2024 today. Now we have legs. That's right. The mascots are coming. The mascots are coming. And Paris 2024 put out a little teaser that showed legs of the Olympic mascot and a leg and a running blade for the Paralympic mascot. And this has released all kinds of speculation. Are they going to be human-like? Are they going to be not human-like? They are clearly not going to be Picasso-like in the Kobe sideways fashion. That we know of. I mean, they could be sideways. I guess they could be, but their feet are forward, so I Mm -hmm. guess. Mm -hmm. And they have normal feet, unlike Athens. (laughs) And they each have two lower limbs, unlike London. Very true. Very true. And they're wearing sneakers when they have shoes. So there's definitely some, some positive hints here. So very excited. It makes it feel more real once you get a mascot going on. We also have some news on a an event name change. So one of the new events for Paris is going to be Extreme Slalom, but that is now going to be called Kayak Cross because that puts it more in line with other cross-type events since it's a head-to-head competition on a an extreme course, basically. And then good news for the organization is that Danone, the yogurt company has agreed to be an official sponsor for Paris 2024. Good news for me. Maybe that means that drinkable yogurt will be in the media rooms again. (laughs) We can hope. So it's cool because if you're having a opening ceremonies party, get some Danone products, except for we in the U.S. will not be lucky enough to see big advertising and Olympic tie-ins because they're just advertising in France. Maybe one of the Danon Danimals animals will be the mascot. That would be cool. Do they have Danimals in France? I don't know. Danimel. Little news from Milan Cortina. What's going on here? Sports Examiner is reporting that the organizing committee finally has a new chief executive. Four years out. (laughs) So entertainment executive Andrea Varnier uh, was the image and events director for Torino 2006. So he's got some Olympic experience. Mostly he's been in movies and TV and amusement park management. And as we've talked about before, the marketing and the sponsorships for Milan Cortina have been very problematic. They've got no money. They've got no sponsors. So CONI, which is the Italian Olympic Committee head, Giovanni Malago, I loved this quote, said, now we can no longer make mistakes. (laughs) So poor Andrea is just going to be thrown on the hill. Hope he gets on his skis. I do too. And comes up with a good game. She don't have much time, but it'll something will get done. That's for sure. So that is going to do it for this week. Let us know your plans for twenty uh, Paris 2024. Are you planning on going? Are you going to be a good couch potato? Are you getting extra monitors set up? A couch pomme de terre. <laughs> 
pommes de terre, des sofas. <laughs> and you can tell me how bad my French is by email at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAMEIT. Our social handle is at Flame Alive Pod, and be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, Book Club Claire will be back so we can talk about Snowball's Chance, the story of the 1960 Olympic Winter Games by David C. Antonucci. Looking forward to delving back into some interesting history of the time. Speaking of entertainment leaders, Walt Disney, big part of the entertainment of this games. So that will be fun to talk about. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>